0: To No Compromise Radio Ministry. Mike Abenroth, back at the helm with a new music 12 second intro. YouTube channel, No Compromise Radio. Twitter, at No Co Radio. Instagram, I think it might be at No Co Radio. And I don't know, I guess that's about it. I should be in Tennessee this November for a conference, Deeply Rooted, and also in Omaha for the Pactum Conference. That is a cough button, but you didn't know it because I pushed the cough button. Again, my my health is good. Thanks for praying. Health is good. I guess it's relatively speaking. <laughs> uh, working out six days a week, riding the bicycle, I still don't have the full power of my voice though, and it kind of sounds a little scratchy. For those of you that are old enough, and most of my audience is older, I I think I appeal to young people, but probably not as much as I think I do. Uh, There's a lady named Kim Carnes, I believe, and she did a song with a very gravelly voice. She's got Betty Davis eyes. And so you can type that in if you want to watch it. It was kind of an interesting, catchy tune. Very uh, mysterious kind of thing. She's got Betty Davis eyes. So maybe I've got that gruff, rough gravelly, male equivalent of, he's got Betty Davis's voice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also really stuffy too. I just left the ENT doctor and I've got a deviated septum from when I was a kid. Playing baseball, of all things, which I hate. That's probably why I hate it. it. got hit right in the nose. You're supposed to get hurt doing your favorite sport right? Kim doesn't like it. My wife doesn't like it if she gets injured, I don't know, playing tennis. She'd rather get well, not get injured at all, but if she had to, she'd rather get injured surfing. So I'm bicycling. I don't want to get injured surfing if I like bicycling. All that to say, we plow forward. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Outer man's decaying, inward man is being renewed day by day. And aren't we thankful for that? Aren't we thankful we know what our future will be like and that our inheritance is purchased and impervious? to decay 1 Peter chapter 1 All right here's what we're Oh side note discovering colossians should be out super soon S. Lewis Johnson an excellent commentary I can say that because I didn't write it I just fine-tuned a few things wrote some discussion questions collated compiled <laughs> compromised <laughs> <laughs> It is, in fact, a madhouse, Charlton Heston, because I can't really talk that well. I've got a Band-Aid on my right arm from giving blood to test to see if I have allergies. I've got a Band-Aid on my other arm, my left arm. Uh, they said they were going to take a biopsy on my skin, and I just they said we're going to shave a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay, I can shave a little bit, just kind of scrape it off like with a credit card type of thing. And they put so much lidocaine in my arm, I should have known <laughs> it was going to hurt a banshee. <laughs> is that politically correct? Am I allowed to say that? A banshee? A banhee? Anyway, it was pretty deep. It was pretty deep. But anyway, Christian Harris, if you're listening, and I know you probably are, my biopsy is nothing compared to you and to, your, to yours, as I saw those pictures the other day, and it was like, wow, they went down one eighth of an inch into your nose. That was big. At a size of about a dime on your nose there. So anyway, put sunscreen lotion on. I guess is the moral of the story. I think today, what we're going to do is we're going to take today's show and tomorrow's show and cover the entire book of Romans, the entire book of Romans. Now I have been preaching through the Gospel of Jesus according to Luke on Sunday mornings at Bethlehem Bible Church. Came back from vacation and have lots of meetings, uh, have lots of catch-up, follow-up, stand-up, that kind of stuff, things to do with lots of different leaders. And we purchased a house adjacent to the church lot and trying to figure all that stuff out. So in one sense, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something I've already done before or something newer uh, that I've worked on, and then I don't have to get straight back into Luke, just to take a kind of little breather. And so I thought, well, you know what? Whenever I go to another church to worship, and I sit as a layperson, a congregant, I say to myself, if someone comes to me and says, would you please preach because our pastor just got sick or had an emergency, I would always say yes, And then in the old days, I would be so nervous, I'd probably go throw up and then I'd go preach. Well, I'm not that nervous anymore. And so I would say yes. And then I would do a jet tour of the epistle to the Romans. I think the first jet tour I ever heard was John MacArthur doing a jet tour of Revelation. And I I found it so wonderful because... We go verse by verse, we slow it down, you know, 80 sermons in Romans, 60 sermons in Romans, 200 sermons in Romans, that kind of thing. But these letters were meant to be read straight through, and then you would have a lot of, you'd have a lot fewer mistakes, right? Because you would realize, oh, the indicatives are tied to the imperatives, and this is not just moralism and law, it's coming from the hand of Christ and who we are in Him, Mm -hmm. Ephesians 1 to 3, in Him union, or... Uh, Romans chapter 6 in Him Union. So I thought, you know what? Uh, I did a conference up in Portland uh, years ago with my friends up there, and I didn't know what to do for the 10 messages. It's the old meetings. You know, we have meetings Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday morning, Monday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, and, you know, 10 meetings. What do I do? So I did 10 jet tours, and the people really liked it because it, too, supplemented their pastor's uh, verse-by-verse preaching. So anyway, today, Romans, part one, tomorrow, Lord willing, Romans, part two. I could extend this out into Heidelblog series on Romans that Clark is doing. I think he's up to chapter eight. And by the way, Scott, good call out the other day for Luke. You called out Luke's buddies. Luke got married. Luke starts seminary. My son, Luke, starts seminary this fall. By the time you hear this, he'll already be in for a week. And... What are the odds and over-unders that he will be a paedo-baptist by the time he gets out? I don't think he's going to be, but he's going to Westminster Seminary Escondido. And I think he's got Scott Clark for one of his professors. So there's no partiality, Luke. So you're going to have to get a grade on your own. You can't get a grade based on my friendship with R. Scott Clark. The Book of Romans, an overview. What's the purpose for my overview messages? The purpose is really so you can get the sweeping thought of Romans so that when you go back to particular sections, you'll be able to identify those sections and see how the parts not only make up the whole, but contribute to the whole and are to be read in light of the whole. Does that make sense? Matter of fact, I should just record this and play this for Sunday morning sermon, and then I wouldn't have to do it two times. (laughs) But I'm already behind because I'm eight minutes into the show and we haven't said anything about Romans. The book of Romans... The key word in the book of Romans, well, of course, it could be Jesus or Christ, but the key word, theological word, is righteousness. It is righteousness. And this word righteousness is important. So, when you obey the law, you do the right thing and you earn righteousness. And we are to perfectly obey the law and we will have a righteous standing before God and they therefore will be able to enter into heaven why would God punish us for doing right things and having righteousness well because of Adam's fall that's an impossibility now and we are people lacking in righteousness hence Jesus being sent to save us from our sins and lack of righteousness and the book of Romans gives us that theme of righteousness. If you want one word for Romans to understand it, it's the word righteousness. And if I were going to give you an outline of the book of Romans, it would be the first two and a half chapters through 320 would be righteousness is needed, or I could put it in an imperative, you need righteousness. And the second part would be Righteousness given or righteousness credited, righteousness reckoned, and that is 321. Let's just say through the end of chapter 11, and that's righteousness credited, forensically, judicially, courtroom language. So, we have righteousness needed, that's guilt. We have righteousness granted, that's grace. And then we have righteousness applied, And that's chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. And that is gratitude. So if you'd like to understand the book of Romans, you need to understand the 16 chapters. Follow the paradigm of guilt, grace, and gratitude. That's where Heidelberg got it. It wasn't the other way around. Oh, we're thankful that Romans does that because Heidelberg set the standard. It's the other way. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. That is a good way to think about Romans. And he starts off with discussion of the gospel. In chapter 1, verses 1 and verse 15, he's excited and eager to preach the gospel to those at Rome. There's lots of issues going on at Rome, from abortion to murder to incest to sexual sins to slavery to all kinds of social ills, and he knows that what they need is the gospel. He ends with the gospel as well, and he says the gospel strengthens. And I want you to know that the gospel, good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, sin-bearing Savior, law-keeping Savior, our representative and substitute, it's good news that Jesus... Uh, Gives to the unbeliever, the ungodly, but also to the believer. So these believers need to be reminded, just like you need to be reminded, about what you were outside of Christ in Adam, guilty, that Jesus sought you and bought you with his redeeming love, grace, and how do you respond? Gratitude. And therefore, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, this book is good for you. It's about righteousness, guilt, grace, and gratitude and the first thing that paul does is he reminds us of this very important theme after his intro for i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also the greek for in it that is the gospel that is the good news romans 116 Now, we moved to verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And therefore, we have this great theme of the righteousness of God. And of course, Luther thought uh, we have to be you know, somehow so right that God will accept us, and it made him very mad. And when the lights went on by the Spirit's illumination, that this is the righteousness that God provides, of course, through his son and his law-keeping, his son's law-keeping, then he was happy and he was thankful that this is something that God provides, not just demands. Well, something else is revealed, In verse 18 and following, what Paul is trying to do is trying to show that whether you're a pagan or a moralist, whether you're somebody that goes to Jerry Springer, or you're a moral person, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, to be more specific here, you need righteousness. He makes the case that everyone needs righteousness, and he's going to use a lot of law to show people that they need a Savior. Uh, it doesn't do any good to tell people about Jesus if they don't think they need him, right? If they don't think they're spiritually not just sick, but dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually blind, etc. And so, there's something bad that's going to happen to people that are unrighteous. And that is everyone outside of the Lord Jesus uh, when they're born and they need to have righteousness. Because it's not just righteousness that's revealed. Verse 1 uh, verse 18 rather, says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what they do is they realize that it is obvious that there's a God, that he has power, and that he has uh, that He is divine, and they are clearly understanding that, and they are without excuse, verse 20. And what Paul is trying to do is to say, you pagan people, you non-Israelites, you Gentiles, uh, you need righteousness, and you can tell there's a God, and you ought to be giving him thanks, and you think you're really wise, but you end up worshiping weird things like birds and animals and creeping things, and the punishment of sin is often sin. Sometimes the punishment of sin is... uh, some type of other sin. And so, three times in Romans 1, 24 and following, the Bible says God gave them up. Verse 24, he gave them up. Verse 26, he gave them up. Verse 28, he gave them up. And so, to impurity, he gives them up, to dishonorable passions, to debased mind, and he just judicially hardens them. They go off on their own way and they become homosexual. Uh, They are unrighteous in all kinds of ways, from envy and murder to haters of God. And they not only do that, but they're happy when other people do unrighteous things. So pagans are unrighteous. Non-Jews are unrighteous. If you're listening today... And you're not a Christian, you're, you don't happen to be Jewish, you are unrighteous. Maybe not before other people, but before God. God created you and God will judge you one day and you need a Savior. You ought to say to yourself, that's true, I am unrighteous. What also is true is the people outside are mowing. <laughs> but I have to keep recording because what am I going to do? I, I can't stop now. Don't stop me now. Uh, the unbelievers, pagans, are unrighteous. And so what Paul is trying to say is everybody's guilty. And the sooner you admit that, the better. And if you're a Christian, it's good to remind yourself again, yes, in fact, that was me. And there's more mowing. <laughs> Spencer, can you take that mowing sound out? Yes, but what about moral people? I mean, unrighteousness is one thing. Self-righteousness... From the human perspective, is even more damning because people have no need. You have a nice yard, you have a nice wife, you have nice children, you have a nice job. You pay your taxes. You're, you know, you're patriotic. You love your neighbor. Uh, you're not trying to swindle people, and you mind your own business. And whatever you think morality looks like, sometimes it's harder for those moral people and these Jews in chapter two and specifically three they need righteousness. They can't fall back on their morality or their Jewishness or their circumcision. And moral people should know that they need righteousness because chapter two, it says in verse one, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, You moral people know that those folks of chapter 1, those Gentile, pagan, unbelievers, you know when they do things that are wrong. And if you know what they're doing is wrong, you have a standard of right and wrong, and therefore you are held accountable. That's what he's saying. You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, will you escape the judgment of God, verse 3? And he says, okay, basically, you're a moral person. How moral must I be to get to heaven? How good must I be to get to heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says in chapter 2, verse 6, he'll render to each one according to his works. So all you have to do is perfectly obey the law, entirely obey the law, exactly obey the law, perpetually obey the law. That's all you have to do. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Just obey the law. And again, this is only theoretical because of Adam's fall. He's trying to get people to say, do you know what? I'm not righteous, even though I'm moral. For it is not the hearers of the law, 2.13, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. That's not some type of final justification. Do you have enough sanctified living in order to make it to heaven? A, that's not Pauline. And B, this isn't the sanctification, holy, living, godliness section. That's in chapter 6 and 7. This is the section to try to push everybody up against the law so that you say with me, I have no excuse. My conscience knows it. I've got the law written on my heart. It doesn't matter if I'm Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if I'm circumcised. I am unrighteous. Well, isn't there any, isn't isn't it good to be a Jew in any way, shape, or form? The answer in chapter three is yes. What advantage has the Jew? I mean, they get circumcision, they get oracles of God, they get promises of God, but it says in verse nine, what then are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. And he gives a bunch of other quotes from the Psalms to show that people are unrighteous. So, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, agnostic, atheist, or catechized and confirmed, you need righteousness. This is what we call guilt because people need to know their need of a savior. It says in verse 19, everything's leading to this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's the mirror first use, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We give the law to people, and what we want by the Spirit's prompting is for them to finally say, You know what? You're right. I I haven't loved God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength since I was born. I haven't loved my neighbor like I love myself since I was born, and I stand condemned. If what you say is true about the holiness of God and immortality and sin and death and hell, I'm going. I'm going there. I, I stand needy. That's me. That's what this whole thing is leading up to, guilt. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, you can't keep the law to get to heaven. The law here is given to the unbeliever to show him or her their sin. And so, chapter 1, 2, and 3 through verse 20 is all about guilt. No righteousness. And for us as Christians, it's good to be reminded again, remember, we had no righteousness. But now we come to the next section, grace. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. That is, we're going to get that righteousness without us keeping the law, although Jesus kept it. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believed. And it talks about we're justified, and we are redeemed, and um, God's anger has been propitiated. And everything in this is showing how great it is that here in justification, God gives us Christ's perfect righteousness as he kept the law. Jesus paid for our unrighteousness at Calvary, the wages of sin is death, and he dies a sinner's death on our behalf, even though he's blameless. And he's raised from the dead. And you say, well, chapter 4, you know, I've got a question. What about Abraham? I mean, certainly he was circumcised. He kept the law. He's getting into heaven by that. Did you know what the scripture says in chapter 4, verse 3? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, what about David? I mean, David, I think he's a good king. He's a man after God's own heart. What about what about David? David also speaks of the blessing to whom the God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against the whom sorry. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And if you want to go to the Old Testament and ask the question, how are people back then saved? The answer is the same way. Through faith. Alone, We look back to the Savior, they looked forward to the Savior, and it's not because Abraham was circumcised. If you look at the passage and check out Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, and 22, you'll find out that Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. Therefore, when it comes to righteousness, given, it's in the New Testament, it's in The old. And if you think somehow uh, the promise of God is through circumcision only, and that's how you get into heaven and its works, uh, Paul addresses that in verses 9 through 25. Well, you say to yourself, are there benefits to this justification where God credits righteousness to my account and credits sin to Jesus' account? Are there, are there other benefits that go along with it? That's good so far. I love that grace. What about more than that? Is there more than that? And Paul says, yes, there's more than that. He says in chapter 5, there are benefits to justification. And one of the benefits, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, is we have peace with God. This is not subjective, peaceful, easy feeling. This is objective peace. There was war, and now there's peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are more benefits. You have obtained access by faith into this grace. You have access to God anytime you want. You don't have to go to the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court yard, and then at the holy place, and then the holy of holies, and now everything, you know, the, the, the curtain has been torn asunder from top to bottom. You can go to the Lord anytime you want. You can just, like a, a son goes into his father's office, you just walk right in. And what do we know? We know that even our sufferings are working in us. Not only has God justified us, but he's got us now in such a place where our sufferings produce endurance and endurance character and character hope. And this is because God loves, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is all this extolling language of who Jesus is and how he dies for the ungodly and how he shows his love for us. God does it while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And if God has saved us and justified us, won't he give us everything else so therefore we can rejoice? And I know people probably are saying, "Yes, but how can one person represents many? How can Jesus represent many and not just himself? Well, a theological answer is because Jesus is perfectly human, but he's perfectly divine as well, and he can bestow uh, all of the riches that he has. Paul comes at it from a different point though he now in chapter five verses twelve through twenty, he says. Let me tell you a little story about Adam. Remember how Adam affected a lot of other people? And so if Adam can affect other people, much more for the positive, Jesus can affect other people. And this whole section is about federal or covenant representation. Sin came into the world, verse 12, through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is even before the law of Moses. Uh, There is Adam's sin credited to everyone by God's good decree. And if many died, verse 15, through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus abounded for many. And his whole argument is federal representation is true. If you're wondering about how Jesus could do something for other people, He says to the Jews and, of course, to the Gentiles as well, we'll think about Adam. Let's go all the way back. One trespass for Adam leads to condemnation for all men. One act of righteousness, you take all of Jesus's perfect life and you add it up and you think it leads to justification of life for all men. And so, therefore, there is a representative economy in God's eyes, federal representation and we could elaborate that on that more on that but we say to ourselves okay that's good i've been justified does that mean i can just do whatever i want if I, if if justification is irrevocable if i could never undo justification I never did justification, therefore, how can I undo it if it's God's work? Does that mean I could just do whatever I want? I mean, are you telling me that all my sins, past, present, and future, are forever credited to Jesus and I'll never have to answer for one of them? Are you telling me that? Yes, I am, Paul says, and yes, I am. I'm telling you that. Therefore, what's your response? Should you say, well, then I think I'll just sin a lot. God's been so gracious to me. I was so guilty and he's been so kind and it'll be a real dishonor to him, but I think I'd like to do that anyway. Well, of course not. Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Answer, no. By no means. Meganoita. No, you're not supposed to do that at all. And if grace wasn't free and if justification wasn't a forensic judicial act, then maybe you'd, you, you would never ask the question. Right, If if your salvation depends on you keeping up your end of the bargain, even as a Christian, you're not going to say, should I sin? Because otherwise you're going to say, well, I'm going to sin and I'm going to lose my salvation. But here, proper gospel preaching is going to elicit this response. You could, I guess, sin, but you shouldn't. That's what Paul is saying. And now he gives a whole section in chapter 6 about union with Christ, united with Christ. When Jesus died, dear Christian, you died in him. When he was buried, you were buried with him. When he was raised, you were raised too, that you might walk in newness of life. life. Your old self was crucified. So so don't live for your old self anymore. Verse 11, the first imperative in all the, I was going to say the gospel of Romans. There's the gospel in Romans. That's certainly true. It says in chapter six, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The next time you're tempted to sin, you should consider, you should ruminate, you should think, you should reckon, you should say to yourself, I'm dead to sin, I don't have to do that. Why would I go back to that? Why would I wallow back in that mire and I'm all cleaned off now? Sin has no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. So, don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You're alive to God in Christ. And this is what we call sanctification, where it's the work of God's grace through faith that we say to ourselves, my response is, I want to say no to sin, death, mortification, and I want to say yes to righteousness. God, I'd like to live a holy life uh, for you. That's what this is. This is called sanctification in chapter six and seven. What then are we to sin? Verse 15, because we're not under law, but under grace by no means. Yes, but I know I'm united to Christ and I know I'm with Christ and I know I died with Christ and was buried with Christ and was raised with Christ. But I, I I feel like I sin a lot. I, I almost feel like I sin more than I did before I was saved. Now What? Verse 15 of chapter 7, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good, so it's no longer I who do it, but the sin dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And we are certainly with Paul, wretched men, right? In that sense, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here we have the turn. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You see what Paul's doing there? Paul's saying that there's a righteousness that's manifest in your life. And certainly when you're justified, you will be sanctified. And faith alone uh, saves faith alone in the risen Savior, the object for us, but, but but that faith won't be alone, sanctification. I just don't want to mix up categories. I don't want you to think as a Christian, my standing before God based on my holy living, and that's what typically people do. That's why we have the means of grace and preaching in the sacraments, so that doesn't happen. Well, my name is Mike Abendroth. This is Romans part one, and I know we didn't cover eight chapters, but almost. We have no righteousness. We stand guilty because we need righteousness. Righteousness is given by the Lord Jesus Christ, freely. He paid the price. We receive it freely. Through faith, we receive it. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad that God justifies, God redeems, God forgives, and there's nothing you can do to earn that? It's just a gift? That's wonderful. Well, my name is Mike Abendoth. This is Romans Jet Tour Part 1. You can email me, mike at com.